The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the book of the prophet Isaiah in the 40th chapter and reading tonight from verse 25 to verse 28. The 40th chapter of the book of the prophet Isaiah verses 25 to 28. To whom then will he liken me? Or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high, and behold, who hath created these things, that bringeth out their host by number? He calleth them all by names, by the greatness of his might, for that he is strong in power, not one faileth. Why sayest thou, O Jacob, and speakest, O Israel, My way is hid from the Lord, and my judgment is passed from my God. Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard, that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary? There is no searching of his understanding. Now, we are considering here one of those further answers that the prophet gives us in this chapter to the query that arises in the minds of men and women when they are brought face to face with the declaration of the great and merciful promises of God. We are looking at this great and mighty chapter, one of the most moving in the whole of the Bible, for the eleventh time. And for the sake of those who may not have been present on previous occasions, may I indicate to you the way in which we have been expanding it, in order that you may see exactly where these verses that we are looking at tonight come in. Our understanding of the chapter can be put in this way very hurriedly. In the first 11 verses, the pronouncement, the proclamation of the gospel is made. It's one of those great Old Testament prophecies of the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and of how he comes and of what he's going to do. You find it verified and quoted in the New Testament. Very well, there is the gospel. The gospel in its essence is this that into this world of sin and shame and of rebellion against God, this world that has reduced itself to chaos because of men's disobedience and turning away from God, the announcement is that God himself is going to intervene. That when men have tried and men have failed, God still looks upon us with mercy and with love and with compassion. And the proclamation he makes is that he's going to send into this world his only begotten son. He's going to send this great personage who is so great that he needs a special way to be made for him. And who is he? Well, this is the message. Behold your God. There he is, the savior of the world. God the son. And we are given this extraordinary description of him in his dual character of the mighty conqueror and yet the tender, gentle shepherd that picks up the lambs and is 
so gently in the way in which gentle in the way he leads those that are with young. There is the great proclamation of the gospel. But now when that proclamation was first made, the children of Israel found it very difficult to believe it. The world still finds it difficult to believe it. That's why the vast majority of people in the world tonight are not Christian, and not only don't believe it, but reject it with scorn and regard it even as an insult. Well, in the remainder of the chapter, the prophet takes up these difficulties that people say that they have, and he raises them and he answers them. There's only one ultimate answer to all these questions, and that is that men have such a faulty and wrong conception of God that any of their particular thinking about him is of necessity wrong. So the prophet starts off at once by issuing that great challenge, who hath directed the spirit of the Lord, or being his counselor hath taught him, with whom took he counsel, and who instructed him and taught him in the path of judgment, and taught him knowledge. In other words, uh, the great stumbling block that uh, people fall over as they come to consider the gospel of Christ is, that they think that their minds and their philosophies are big enough to spend this gospel. They haven't realized that the first thing we have to do when we come face to face with the gospel of Jesus Christ is to obey the injunction of the Apostle Paul, which he puts in these words, If any man be wise in this world, let him become a fool that he may be made wise. The first thing to say as you confront the gospel is this, great is the mystery of godliness. And any man who thinks he can understand it is doomed to failure before he goes any further. The prophet takes up that argument and he answers it in that way. We've considered it. But then there is a second difficulty. Men have got uh, this false notion of God because they will persist in thinking of God in terms of their own gods. There it is, he takes it up and starts dealing with that at verse 18 and goes on to verse 24. To whom then will he liken God? Or what likeness will he compare unto him? And then he takes up the graven images, the idols that men make themselves and then proceed to worship. And they think that God is like that. And he ridicules it. In other words, last Sunday night we spent our evening in examining that. And we saw that here we have one of those tremendous exposures of unbelief. And we saw that the prophet, as the Bible does everywhere, exposes the unutterable folly of unbelief. That people can believe in idols they've made themselves, but say they can't believe in God. What utter folly unbelief is. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. A man who says there is no God is a fool. He's foolish. He has his own gods. He believes in them. And yet he rejects the almighty and eternal God. In the same way, you remember that he went on to show how in every respect this unutterable folly manifests itself. He works it out, this faith that men have in the princes and in the judges of the earth, all of which is but as vanity. They, they don't seem to, uh, to realize that. And they don't realize the greatness of God's power. But it's ignorance, he says. It's nothing but ignorance because God has given evidence of himself. He's given it in nature. 
He's given it in nature by uh, just creating the world. It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain. You have no excuse for this ignorance, says the prophet. Look at nature. And then he takes up the argument of history. What God has done in history. He mentions these princes and these judges, these great men. But this is what he says. Yea, they shall not be planted. They, yea, they shall not be sown. Yea, their stock shall not take root in the earth. He shall also blow upon them and they shall wither. And the history of the Bible is just an illustration of all that. And so is subsequent world history. Very well, then, he's dealt with these problems and difficulties. But here in this section that we're looking at tonight, he comes to yet another difficulty. You know, my friends, we shall be without any excuse at all in the eternal day of judgment if we are not Christians. Because the Bible not only gives us its message, it even helps us to believe it. It answers your difficulties before you were ever born. They're all here. I don't hesitate to make this asseveration from this pulpit tonight. There is never a difficulty that any man has ever thought of with regard to believing the gospel, but that it's already dealt with and answered in the scriptures. Now, here is another of them tonight. What's the difficulty here? Well, the difficulty here is this difficulty concerning God's ways. It's uh, the difficulty of understanding God's purposes and promises in the light of things that are happening in the world. It's, in other words, it's a doubting of God's ability and of his goodness. That's the particular problem which is dealt with here. Of course, it's just another illustration, I say, of the great central difficulty of not being clear about the being of God, as I'm going to show you in a moment. But that central difficulty manifests and expresses itself in different ways. And there is none, perhaps, that is quite so common as this one. It's summarized for us in verse 27. Listen again. The prophet addresses the people and he says, Why sayest thou, O Jacob, and speakest, O Israel, My way is hid from the Lord? and my judgment is passed over from my God. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means this. It isn't a statement on the part of Israel and of Jacob that they can do what they like and God won't see it. That is true. Incidentally, they did believe that kind of thing, but that isn't what's being said here. This is a complaint, rather, and it's a complaint along these lines. Israel says, why am I having such a difficult time? God has always told us that we are his people. Very well, if we are his people, why does he allow us to suffer? Why are things going against us? Why has my judgment passed over from my God? Which means this, you see, that they were beginning to doubt God's goodness. They couldn't quite make up their minds as to what was the real explanation. Was it that God was not able to do anything for them? Or was it that God really didn't care what happened to them? They say, where is God's righteousness? Where is his judgment? He says that he's a just God. Well, is this a fair way of dealing with us? That's the question that they ask. In view of their circumstances and certain things that they could see, they had been questioning the power of God and the goodness of God. 
Now there is no doubt at all that there are large numbers of people tonight outside the church and outside Christ for just this very reason. That they say that they cannot reconcile the things that they know and the things they see with the claims that are made in the Bible for God and for his character. It's an old problem, this, and a very persistent one. You'll find it dealt with in, on innumerable occasions in the scriptures themselves. It's almost a standing complaint in the book of Psalms. The children of Israel were always ready to grumble and to complain in this way whenever things went wrong with them. They never say this sort of thing while things are going well, of course. When things were going well, they just forget God altogether. But when things go wrong, they turn back and say, now is this fair? Where is God? Is God just in doing this? Is God not able to deliver us? What is happening? And it's dealt with repeatedly. <coughs> But it is as common a difficulty and as common a complaint tonight as it was in the Old Testament times and in the New Testament times. It's always been brought up by people as a difficulty. They say they'd like to believe the gospel, but they say we just can't. They say, now there are all those promises of God. And all the great claims of your gospel and yet look at the world. They say, if God is God, and if God is what the Bible says he is, how can these things be? They say, look at the innocent suffering. And look at the people who are evil and ungodly and selfish, flourishing and having a thoroughly good time. They say the way of godliness doesn't seem to pay in a world like this. Look at the injustices, look at the cruelty, look at the people who are born perhaps blind or lame or something like that. Now they say, I can't believe in the God of your Bible when I see things like that. That's the sort of argument. This querying and doubting of God's goodness, of God's justice, of God's righteousness, of God's benevolence. And then they say, look at this problem of war. Why does God allow war? If there is a God, how can he possibly allow such a thing? Why doesn't he stop it? You say he's got almighty power, they argue. Well, very well, if he's got the power, why doesn't he exercise it? It must be that he's not good. That's what they say. And they take up all the statements of the Bible about God one after another and they raise their queries. They say, but look at the facts, face the position. It's no use making these great assertions, they say. It's no use telling us about God's exceeding great and precious promises. Where are they? And why aren't they being carried out in life? And they're particularly fond of doing this, of course, with regard to a question like that, the second coming of Christ. Where is the promise of his coming, they say. They were saying it in the New Testament times, you remember. The preaching was that this Christ of God had come and he'd worked out this great salvation. Yes, he'd returned to heaven and he was seated at the right hand of God until his enemies should be made his footstool. But they said he's going to come again. And he's coming to judgment and he's coming to remove out of the world everything that's opposed to God and establish his kingdom, a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Ah, said the doubters and the skeptics, that's all right, but where is the promise of his coming? It's all very well, they said, to preach a thing like that, but look at the time that's gone, and it's put like this today, isn't it? You've had 2,000 years, they say, of Christian preaching, but the world doesn't seem to be very much better.
If your gospel is true, why isn't everybody Christian? Why isn't the world delivered from wars and pestilences? And where is this return of Christ you're talking about? When is this kind of thing going to happen? Is it going to happen? Can God send him? Does he want to send him? Those are the questions. Now that is the problem which is taken up here by the prophet. And I want to consider it with you and to show you how again face to face with this he has everything to say that we need. He has the complete and the perfect answer. What is the answer? Well, the answer is still the character of God. It's always the answer. I say again that it is our total and completely inadequate ideas of God and our unworthy conceptions of God that account for all our troubles, all our problems, all our difficulties about believing this Christian message. We don't understand it. That's the trouble. God is so great and so different that we stumble at every point. We think we can understand, we think we're competent to, and we bring our questions and we analyze with our minds, and because God doesn't conform to what we think, we say, this is wrong, this can't be true. My dear friends, it's all, I say, owing to this tragic inability of men truly to understand the character of God. Now listen to the prophet as he again holds us face to face with God. That's all he's got to say by way of answer to this problem, as he's answered every other problem. And he tells us here three things about the character of God. Is there anyone, I wonder, I'm sure there is, in this congregation, who's in trouble at this very point? You can't understand God's way. You say you want to believe, you wish you could believe. But you say, I can't commit intellectual suicide. I must know where I stand. I must have some kind of explanation. And I'm baffled by the contrast between the claims and what I see and what I know. What's the answer of the prophet? Well, here it is. He starts by holding us face to face with the holiness of God. Listen to him here in the first statement. He repeats the challenge which he'd introduced in verse 18. Notice the difference between verse 18 and verse 25. In verse 18 I read, To whom then will he liken God? Or what likeness will he compare unto him? In verse 25 I read, To whom then will he liken me? Or shall I be equal? Seth, the Holy One. You notice the new term. The Holy One. This is God's description of himself. This is the way in which the Bible always refers to him. And this is the way in which the Bible always meets us at this particular point of difficulty and the way in which it always answers us. It always starts by making this great assertion that God is holy. It doesn't argue about this, it proclaims it. And, of course, it's just here we find ourselves in our greatest difficulty. It is here that we differ most of all from God. We cannot conceive of the holiness of God. We can't grasp what it means. 
And if there is one point more than another at which all our powers and faculties are to be seen for the pygmy things they are, it is when we try to consider the unutterable holiness of God. Our minds boggle at the greatness and the might and the majesty of God, don't they? We feel our measures are too small. But it is when we come to this quality of God which is called His holiness that all our knowledge and philosophy and ability, it's all so inadequate, it all just becomes quite useless in our hands. Why? Well, because God is so essentially different. It isn't often I have a good word to say for any kind of modern theology. But there is one emphasis in modern theology which I believe is excellent, and that is that section of it at any rate, which puts great emphasis upon the utter qualitative difference between God and men. And if we don't start with that, we can never be right anywhere. And what is the thing that divides and separates men from God most of all? Well, it's just this. It is holiness. It's moral character. We are separated from God, I say, in every respect, but no, in no respect more than this. Here, I say, we are face to face with something that's so entirely different from us that we can't begin to understand it. And there is nothing to do but to humble ourselves before it and to drop onto our knees and to worship him and to acknowledge that we are undone. The Bible, I say, doesn't argue this, it asserts it. My friends, the main trouble with us all is that we don't know God. It isn't our particular problems that constitute the real problem. Your problem, you know, is not to understand miracles. If you understood God, you'd have no difficulty with miracles. All the troubles are due to the fact we don't understand God. The categories are too high, they're too great, they're too exalted. It's God himself. And what the Bible asserts about God above everything else is this, that God is essentially holy. That is the thing that makes God, God. His unutterable holiness. I almost hesitate to preach on such a theme. But I'm not here to choose my themes. It's my business to expound the word. And God has been pleased to reveal himself and his holiness to us. That is why he gave the Ten Commandments and the Moral Law. That's the message he gave the prophets. That's what he's revealed supremely in his Son. That's what the Son taught in the Sermon on the Mount. Holiness. Holiness unto the Lord. The whole message of the Bible in a sense is this. Be ye holy for I am holy. Listen to what the Bible tells us about God. God, it says, is light. And in him is no darkness at all. Can you conceive of that? Where's your mind? Where's your philosophy? Where's your understanding? That's God. God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. None. Unutterable, unmixed, absolute, eternal light. 
That's just a figure of the holiness of God and it's inadequate. He has no connection with evil whatsoever. He is of such a pure countenance that he cannot even look upon it. That's what the Bible says. What is God? God is a consuming fire. Our God is a consuming fire, dwelling in the light that is unapproachable, that no man hath ever seen or can see. That's God. The burning light, says the Bible. My dear friends, even the scriptures themselves are constantly confessing to us that they cannot give us an account of God. You see, our language is too small, it's inadequate, it's unworthy, and our very terms and categories are polluted by sin, so that in a sense anything we may say about God is detracting from the glory of God. Thank God we are given these images, we are given these figures, we are given these comparisons, but they only take us to the threshold of it all. God. What better can I say than to remind you of this? That when his only begotten son was in this world and took upon him the likeness of sinful flesh, when he prayed to God, he ever said, Holy Father, Holy Father. He knew, and he alone has known on this earth the holiness of God. What's it mean? Well, it means unutterable righteousness. It means that God is truth that God is light, as I've been saying, and that everything that God does is controlled by truth and by right and by holiness, by justice. That is the holiness of God. And therefore, you see, it follows, doesn't it, of necessity, that the moment you and I begin to try to consider and to understand anything that God does in this world, we must always start with this category of holiness. Because that is God, well, everything God does partakes of that character and of that quality. Though I may not understand many things, as a Christian I say this, that God is light and whatever God does is right. You must start with that because everything that God does is colored by that and controlled by that and determined by that. Well, now then, you see our difficulty, don't you? If that is God, and if everything that God does is because he's holy, you see where at once we find ourselves in trouble and in difficulty, don't you? Because we are altogether different from that, are we not? You see, we don't start with truth, we start with happiness, don't we? The thing that governs our thinking is selfishness and self-centeredness. What we are out for is not absolute truth and justice and righteousness and holiness. What we want is ease and comfort. We want certain things so that we can enjoy ourselves. We are controlled by self-interest. And that always thinks in terms of happiness and peace and joy. And we see everything from that angle and all our decisions are governed from that angle. And you see, the clash is inevitable, isn't it? There is God in his holiness. Here are we in our sin and unworthiness. And because God does everything from the standpoint of holiness, we don't understand it and we don't like it. Let's be quite frank and honest in our admissions. 
We don't like talk about justice, do we? We don't uh, like talk about law. We don't like retribution. We don't like punishment. We say if God is love, well then of course there mustn't be such a thing as punishment. Then we don't like this law, this idea that God lays down ten commandments and says if you don't keep them I'll punish you. Oh, we say that's all wrong. Yes, and you know why you say that? Because you're not holy. Because you're governed by lust and desire and passion. Because you want to have the best of every conceivable world. Because you want your own way in everything. And because your categories of judgment are all within yourself and are all self-centered and selfish. And God is entirely and utterly and absolutely different. Oh, I have reminded you already, the children of Israel went into trouble always at that point. When everything was going well, they forgot God and turned their backs upon him. But the moment anything went wrong, they turned back and said, Why is God dealing with us like this? Why, what was the matter? Well, it was this. They never believed that they deserved punishment. You see, like every child, human nature, mankind thinks like this. Yes, I've done something that I knew what was wrong, but uh, I don't deserve to be punished for it. And my father or mother's being rather harsh and unkind. Why should I be punished? We've all felt it. We've all said it. And as human beings face to face with God, we still say it. We don't understand the Holy One. We don't know that all God's ways are holy and righteous and just. We are not prepared to say, Shall not the God of all the earth do right? Let me show it to you quite plainly, my friends. Do you know why people stumble at the doctrine of the Incarnation? Do you know why people say that they can't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was God as well as men? That they say they can't accept this notion of two natures in one person? They say their philosophy makes it impossible. They can't believe that the Son of God has literally come down to earth and lived amongst us. Why do they stumble at the Incarnation? I'll tell you. It's really because they've never seen the absolute necessity of the Incarnation. It's because they've never known what sin is. It's because they've never known the exceeding sinfulness of sin. If they had, they'd realize that nothing but the Son of God could save them. Why do people stumble at the cross? Why is the cross an offense? I'll tell you why it's an offense. It says this, that that was the only way in which God can save mankind, which means this. That you and I and every other person have sinned so deeply and so horribly that there is nothing that God can do to forgive us but that. And we don't like it. Oh yes, we'll believe in Christ as a healer of our bodies. We'll believe in him as a teacher. We'll believe in him as an example. But there's one thing that people hate. And that is when they're told that Christ has died for our sins. And that it's by his blood that we are saved. It's been said again this last week. People don't like it. They don't like the blood and the theology of blood. Why not? I'll tell you, they don't understand the holiness of God. They think that God can wink at sin and pretend he hasn't seen it. But if God did that, he wouldn't be holy, my friends. They think that God can put just, just put a cover over sin and make it look respectable. Holiness can't do things like that. 
So that as we stumble at all the ways of God, all he's done in the world and all he's done to us, let us realize in the first place that all our troubles due to this, that we've no conception of the unutterable holiness of God. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And it's only when you've understood what that means that you're entitled to query and to question what God does. You need your mind to be cleansed and purified and purged from sin and selfishness and ugliness and foulness. You need to have the light of God in you and then you'll begin to understand him and say with his only begotten son, Holy Father and worship him and adore him even as you stand facing the cross on which you're about to be crucified. The holiness of God. But let me say just a word about the second thing which the prophet here emphasizes, which is the changelessness or the immutability of God. The changelessness or the immutability of God. Oh, again, we're in trouble at this point, aren't we? And, of course, it's not surprising that we're in trouble at this point. We will persist in thinking of God as if he were just such another as ourselves, as the psalmist puts it. And we, of course, we get tired. We make promises and we don't keep them. As we become great in this world, we tend to forget details and we tend to forget small people. We become so great that we can't be bothered with them. We may have been brought up with them, but as we get on and advance, we tend to forget the people we were brought up with. We become so great that we are indeed oblivious of their very existence. That's man, isn't it? And as we get old, our powers begin to fail and we lose grip and we can no longer do the things we once did. And you see, our trouble arises from the fact that we tend to think that God is like us. We make our God in our own image. And we tend to think that God gets tired and that God begins to forget and that God doesn't see us. We think that the very argument of his greatness in creation is a proof of that. We say, how can such a great God be interested in just a miserable worm like myself? He is the Lord who plays with the universe as if it were nothing and regards the nations as the small dust of the balance. Is he likely to be interested in me personally, we ask? It's asking the impossible, we say. And yet your gospel says that. That's what these children of Israel were saying. They couldn't understand this. They say, God must be getting tired. God has forgotten us, and God is no longer just. He's promised he isn't doing it. He's forgotten the promise. What's the answer of the prophet? Well, listen to him. Lift up your eyes on high, he says, and behold, who hath created these things that bringeth out their host by number? He calleth them all by names, by the greatness of his might, for that he is strong in power, not one faileth. Then he goes on again, hast thou not known, hast thou not heard that the everlasting God the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary? 
There is no searching of his understanding. What's it all mean? Well, let me summarize it very hurriedly in this way. What he says is that God never tires. That God, I say, is changeless and immutable and eternal. He never varies. Indeed, he goes further. He says God is incapable of change. That is the definition of God. I am that I am. I shall be what I shall be. From everlasting to everlasting. His days do not lengthen. Time writes no wrinkle on the brow of the eternal. He's everlastingly, eternally the same. He's the source of all power and of all might. He that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. God never tires. Hast thou not known that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary? There can be no change, there is no modification in him. God as God is everlastingly the same and can never be different. That's the first answer. The second way he puts it is to say that God is still in control of everything. He not only made the world, he sustains the world. He gives life and breath and being to everything. If he withdraws his spirit, everything dies. God is not only the maker and the artificer. He sustains by his amazing providence. Every one of us would die in a second if God didn't keep us alive. That's the teaching of the scripture. The stars in the firmament and all the wonders of nature. God has his eye upon them all. He knows them all. He marshals them all. He calls them all forth. All is in his hands. Everything is under his mighty control. And he never varies and he never tires. He gives out his energy. It's not diminished. It's eternal, everlasting in its source. But thank God I've got something still more wonderful to tell you. He never gets tired. He never wearies. He never becomes faint. He manages the universe. Yes, but this is what I like. He never forgets. And though he's so great, he knows us one by one. Listen. This man uses this marvelous comparison, you remember here. Lift up your eyes, he says, on high, and behold, who hath created these things? He's taking you out on a starry night. He says, look at them all. Can you count the stars? There they are. Look at them. Do you know, he says, God knows them one by one. He calleth them all by names, by the greatness of his power. Not one of them faileth, though he's so great and so mighty. He knows them individually, in detail, one by one, the Lord of all, and yet the intimate, detailed knowledge. He never forgets. His might and his power are manifested not only in general, but in particular. There is nothing that I know of in the whole realm of the gospel that is more wonderful than this. That that everlasting and eternal God knows me? He's not like the great men of the earth who forget the small and the insignificant and can't be bothered with details. Oh yes, he's the center and the soul of every sphere, yet to each loving heart, how near? 
Oliver Wendell Holmes was perfectly right. I see a great and a glorious illustration of this in the life of his dear son, who said, He who hath seen me hath seen the Father. And this is what I find. There he is surrounded by a great mob one day, thronged, we are told, people pressing in upon him. He was on a journey, and he could scarcely move because of the great crowd. He couldn't push his way through it. And suddenly he stops and turns round and says, Who touched me? He was being touched everywhere. He says, who has touched me in particular? He'd felt the hand of a poor woman with an issue of blood, with a desperate need. She touched him and he knew it. The Lord of the universe. But he knew the woman who had touched him and was aware of her personal problem. Still more wonderful do I see him upon the cross, bearing in his holy body the sins of the whole world, experiencing the shame and the agony of it all. There he is submitting himself, and the mighty transaction is going on between the Father and the Son. You'd have thought that with such a problem and in such a situation, he'd have time for no one and nothing. He's dealing with the cosmos. But he has time to listen to a thief that's dying at his side. And he speaks to him out of the agony and says, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. He not only knows the stars one by one, he knows us one by one. Listen to my authority. This is what the Lord Jesus Christ said about him. He looked at his disciples who were rather frightened and alarmed and nervous, and he said, you needn't be. The very hairs of your head are all numbered. This eternal God who sits upon the circle of the earth, who spreads out the heavens as a curtain, to whom the inhabitants of the world in general are but as grasshoppers. He knows you. He's counted the very hairs of your head. There's nothing that can happen to you if you're in Christ apart from God. Even a sparrow doesn't fall to the ground without God. You can't understand this sort of thing. Give way to your philosophy. Leave it at home, my friend. It's too small. You can't take in things like this. The concepts are too great. The Lord of the universe. Interested in the fall of a sparrow. The God of heaven. Taking the trouble to count the hairs of your head because he loves you. And because in Christ he's your father. The holiness of God, the changelessness and the immutability of God. And lastly, the eternal wisdom of God. There is no searching of his understanding. How foolish we are ever to try. We can't understand what's happening in this world and therefore we question and we query because our minds, I say, are too small. But the answer of the Bible is that he has his purpose. He has his plan. God sees the end from the beginning. All this has been arranged before the very foundation of the world. God 
has a purpose and a plan, I say, and he knows what he's doing. He knows the way he taketh. You and I don't. It seems to be contradictory. One thing working this way, the other that way. We say, what is this? We don't understand. God knows. He sees the end as clearly as he sees the beginning. There is no searching of his understanding. You see, you and I, with our little minds and understanding, we only see a little segment of history, the one we happen to be living in. We say it's the most important period in the history of the world because we are alive. Our fathers said that, our grandfathers said it. Our selfishness makes us say that our age is always the greatest and the most important. We see the little segment and we say we don't understand this. My dear friend, if you but put your little segment into the whole, you begin to understand a little. But you can't do it. God can. There is no searching of his understanding. He permits many things which we can't follow, but he knows what he's doing. That's why I read to you that great 11th chapter of the epistle to the Romans at the beginning, where Paul in his own manner takes up the same argument. How do I understand this? The children of Israel are the people of God, and yet they're rejecting the gospel and the Gentiles are believing. Where is God's plan? Are they God's people? That's the question. Did you notice his answer? God permits things. We don't understand, but God's got a plan. It's all perfect. He's planned it all out, and it's all happening according to the divine program. It always has happened, and it always will happen. A little later on in his prophecy, Isaiah, after God has unfolded a little of the plan to him, bursts out and says this, Verily, he says, Thou art a God that hidest thyself, O God of Israel, the Savior. I see now, I couldn't see it before, you're hiding your bright designs. And I, because I couldn't understand them, wondered what you were doing. Verily, thou art a God that hidest thyself, O God of Israel, the Savior. But as I close, let me put it to you like this. Everything I've been trying to say tonight is seen most perfectly, it seems to me, in the cross on Calvary's hill. There it is. I say it with reverence, the strangest thing that God has ever done. God sent his Son into the world and allowed that to happen. How do you understand it? I say there's only one way to understand it, and that is to know that God is holy. God's holiness dictates that sin must be punished. And God cannot forgive any sinner until the sin has been punished. God can't go back on his own word and on his own law, the expression of his own being. And God has said that sin must be punished and that he who sins must die. The wages of sin is death. It seems strange when you look at it at first, but the more you look at that cross, the more you see the perfection of God's ways and how his thoughts and his ways are beyond searching and beyond understanding. That's God's wisdom. It seems to be going wrong. The world seems to be triumphing and his son is suffering. He's God defeated. He dies and he's buried in a grave. Yes, but he rises again. 
to triumph and victory and glory. My dear friends, don't try to understand the inscrutable, but see there the holiness of God. See there the unchangeable holiness of God. See there that God knows what he's doing. See there this amazing wisdom of God that has contrived a way that you and I be saved, that God can be just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. That's the question. It isn't merely a problem of forgiveness, but God must forgive in such a way that he still remains just, and that's the meaning of the cross. God is there just, he's punishing sin, and yet he's the justifier of the ungodly, the one who believes in Jesus. Why? Well, he's punished the sin in Jesus, and therefore he can forgive the sinner. His righteousness is vindicated, his holiness remains unsullied. And yet men can be forgiven. The apparent defeat is the greatest victory. You see the holiness of God. The unchanging character of God. And you see God's eternal and everlasting wisdom. Very well then, my friend, it comes to this. What's our reaction now to this gospel of God? It's quite plain this is what he tells us, that we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God, that we all merit punishment and death and hell, every one of us. There is none righteous, no, not one. God has proclaimed that, and when God says a thing, it's true, and it'll never be changed. That is the truth about us all. But God in his love has provided the way of salvation. In his only begotten Son and through his death upon the cross. And he offers to anyone who believes on him free pardon and forgiveness this very minute. Reconciliation. New life. And an everlasting and a blessed hope. There are God's statements. They'll never change, they'll never be varied, they'll be put into practice, they'll be carried out. But oh, you say, I see no evidence of that. Two thousand years have gone since Christ was buried. Where is the promise of his coming, my dear friend? It will come. God seems to delay, but a thousand years in his sight about as one day, and one day as a thousand years. What God has said, God will perform, and it's one or the other, blessing or cursing. And there is no middle way. What have you made of it? Have you submitted to him and surrendered to him? Sinners, Jesus came to save. Do you remember our Lord's parable of the workers in the vineyard? He, where the, the, the employer went out early in the day, he saw some men standing idle. He said, go and work in my vineyard and I'll give you a penny for it. Off they went. Hours later he went out again and saw another group, sent them in the same way and on the same terms. He went out at the eleventh hour and there were still some men standing idle. And he said, why don't you go and work? Go in and I'll give you a penny. And they went in and worked. Then the time came and the master went to pay them. And he called, first of all, those who had gone into the vineyard at the eleventh hour. And he gave them a penny. 
And then they came all in turn, and then came finally the people who'd gone in at the very beginning. And he gave them a penny also, and they looked at him and they said, Look here, what's this? You gave a penny to the people who only worked for an hour. And are you only giving a penny to us who have borne the heat and the burden of the day? This is scandalous, they said. Look here, we must have more. Five or six times what you've given them. Even ten times. And our Lord had to tell them the same thing. Is thine eye evil because I am good, he says. Have I done you any wrong by being gracious to these lost? Can't I do as I like with my own? That's grace. Did you know this, my friend, that if God were not a God of grace, every one of us would be damned. There'd be no hope for any, for we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. We've no right to ask anything. You've insulted God. You've ignored Him. You've put your will before Him. You've turned your back upon Him. He's told you in your conscience not to do something. You've done it deliberately. That's how you've treated Him. And you haven't thanked Him for your blessings. And yet you think you've got a claim upon Him. It is of God's mercy only that we are not all consumed. God can do as He likes with His own, and He will. His son worked miracles in Capernaum, not in Nazareth. Do you know why he didn't work miracles in Nazareth? I'll tell you. He knew the people. He knew their attitude. And he knew that unless that was broken down, there was no hope for them. If he'd worked miracles, they'd have stood on admiring and expressing their criticisms. He knew the trouble. He had to break them down. And we all must be broken down. There is only one key, if I may so put it, that opens the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the key of repentance. The key of the acknowledgement of sin. The key that makes a man say, I have nothing, have mercy upon me. That he finds irresistible. And he always responds. And showers down of the riches of his grace. Oh, may God open our eyes to the tragedy of rejecting him. Because we don't understand him and what he does. Because he doesn't do what we think he ought to do. And because... He asks us to come to him as suppliants on bended knee, realizing our desperate need. Amen.